0: Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Simea Keynes, the trade and globalization editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: In this episode, we're going to talk about trade, travel, and a bit of COVID-19. Not, not too much, though, don't worry. Um, mainly, we're going to talk about a puzzle in trade economics. And, and the puzzle is, given the costs of trade that we can see why don't people trade more? There seems to be this kind of hidden costs out there that that generate missing trade.
1: To help us understand this missing trade, we spoke to Meredith Starts. Meredith is an assistant professor of economics at, at Stanford University, and her research lies at the intersection of trade and economic development. And in a cool new paper, she looks into the practical reality of what it takes to do trade in Nigeria.
0: We originally recorded Meredith back in January, and and then COVID-19 happened, and so uh, we thought, hey, what an opportunity! Um, so we followed up with her and and thought we'd ask how her research was was evolving, um, and then also in the process we actually spoke to one of the traders that her research surveyed to see how he was was coping with with the fallout from the virus.
1: Before we get to all that. Back in January, we started off by asking Meredith how she got into this topic.
0: So your research, um, you've got a couple papers looking at this question of of barriers to trade in in Nigeria. So how did you first get on to that question?
2: Yeah, so a co-author and I were chatting with a lot of traders in Nigeria, as one does. Yeah, of course. Um, And when we were trying to interview people, quite frequently, they would just disappear for a few weeks at a time and they would get back and we would chat with them again and and they would say oh i was uh, in china on business and we just thought this was super intriguing like these are pretty small businesses they have small shops or warehouses they're selling things like shoes or cell phones or cosmetics right and why why were they doing this and and what were they doing while they were there um and that was really the beginning of sort of this line of thinking
0: so tell us a bit more about i guess nigeria as well as its trade I guess the first
2: notable thing about Nigeria is just that it's huge, right? So it's the biggest economy in Africa in terms of both population and GDP. And a lot of my research actually focuses on on Lagos within Nigeria, which is the commercial capital, basically. And Lagos is an enormous place in its own right. (laughs) So, you know, these numbers are always a little bit questionable, but think like all of the population of Scandinavia in one city and an economy bigger than the entire country of Kenya Okay, so it's just this huge, dynamic, fascinating place, and it's a great place to study trade and commerce because it is both so dynamic and people face so many barriers, right? And so everyone in Lagos is hustling. If there's an arbitrage opportunity, somebody's going to take it. If there's a challenge, people will immediately figure out 10 creative ways around it. And I think that just makes it a really interesting place to think about trade issues.
1: So what does Nigeria trade, though? that's ultimately going to be of interest for your study?
2: Yeah. So for my purposes, I spend a lot of time thinking about consumer goods, right? So of course, Nigeria is also an oil producer, although that's actually a smaller part of the economy than you might think. But sort of my interests are in understanding things that more directly affect the welfare of consumers in developing countries. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about these kind of manufactured consumer goods that I mentioned these guys with the small shops are selling. So things like clothing or electronics or cosmetics or toys and so on. Um, and because Nigeria is not a huge manufacturing country, as are, you know, a lot of developing countries are not, most of those things are imported. And so understanding the process through which they are imported and then eventually make their way to consumers, I think, is really important.
0: Okay, so that's how you motivate it for the kind of, I guess, normal people. Like it's the stuff that matters to them. Let's talk about motivating this for, for trade economists. So what's the kind of the, the puzzle that you are effectively trying to solve?
2: Trade economists are, are really interested in understanding trade costs, which broadly just means the costs of buying things in one place and selling them in another place, right? So on the simplest level, that might be literally the cost to put stuff on a truck and take it to another place. But there might be lots of other things involved too, Right tariffs or financial costs or, or, or other things and so traditionally the way trade economists have tried to think about measuring the size of these costs is looking at the flow of goods between two places and trying to say all else equal what seems to affect the flow of goods right so if we see that two places are further away from each other all else equal we must say there are distance costs of trade And one thing that's sort of puzzling is that when we do that, we seem to estimate costs, right? Again, sort of inferring when there are lower flows of goods, there must be higher costs. We infer costs that are pretty regularly higher than the parts that we actually know how to measure, right? Like we know how to ask people, how much do you pay for shipping or how much do you pay in tariffs? But when we add up all those things, they're lower than this total cost that we see. And so one question is what makes up that gap, right? What's the difference between these kind of costs that we infer and the parts that we actually know how to add up as, as literal payments that people make to trade goods?
1: So you're going to explain the puzzle of the, the missing trade costs that economists haven't yet been able to put their fingers on in estimating.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So suppose you're a Nigerian business person and you want to start importing. You've never imported anything before. What are some of the barriers that that you would face in getting going in this area?
2: Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are the same kind of things you might imagine for trade anywhere, right? You have to pay to bring your goods back. You have to pay to get things through the port and pay some tariffs and so on. There are also some things that you might find more surprising, right? So when we started talking to these traders about why they were traveling to China, they would say things that, once you think about them, make a lot of sense, like, I want to go see what products are available in China that Nigerian consumers might like. Or I want to go check my goods and make sure that they're right and they're what I think they are before I make payment. Okay, But if you're Nigerian, it's actually quite hard to just pick up and go to China or a lot of other countries. So, for instance, it can be very costly or even impossible to get a visa to go to another country if you're Nigerian, right? And that's because a lot of consulates around the world are concerned that Nigerians don't have legitimate business purposes, right? And I don't want to make this too specific to Nigeria. That's a challenge for a lot of developing countries, right? That it can be very difficult to get a visa to go to the US or the UK or China. And so if you're somebody who does want to go look at what goods are available or or meet your supplier, that's more challenging than you might expect coming from a developing country. And so this is sort of you know, nobody's nobody's literally paying a search cost, right, which is why I think it's been hard for economists to put our finger on quantifying these information costs. Because unlike shipping or tariffs, there's not actually, you know, nobody's handing over cash to solve their search barrier. And so one of the kind of insights of this line of research has been people are actually coming up with ways to pay their search costs. It just turns out that it looks like something like traveling to go be there in person.
1: So how do you go about measuring these different types of costs to see if they're important.
2: Yeah. So this is sort of coming back to this this puzzle about the gap. Total trade costs seem to be higher than the parts we know how to measure. This idea that it might have something to do with information costs, which are things like finding the goods you want or checking out your supplier, might be part of that gap. That idea has been around for a long time. But as we sort of said, it's hard to measure because nobody's literally making a payment the way you would for shipping. And so the idea here is that you can sort of see people's willingness to pay to engage in these kind of solutions. Like I just fly to southern China and I'm there in person myself. And that implicitly tells you something about the value they place on solving these search problems or these contract enforcement problems with their suppliers.
0: So how do you go about measuring these barriers to trade and their their cost?
2: Yeah, my my co-author Shelby Grossman and I have been running a panel survey of traders in Lagos, Nigeria, for about five years now. Um, And we actually started by conducting a huge census of shops in all of the main commercial areas of the city. So our team, which is fantastic, went around and actually counted all the shops in all the buildings (laughs) in these neighborhoods, over 50,000 shops. And then from that, we took basically a sample of traders who are dealing in these kind of products we were talking about, like clothing or electronics. And we go in and we survey them. And we ask them lots of detailed questions about how they source their goods, right? So where their suppliers are located, what kind of products they're buying, what prices they pay to their suppliers, whether they traveled to be there in person or not, and so on. And we get a lot of detailed information over time about how suppliers sort of strategize about their importing and their
1: international sourcing. And so what do you see from that?
2: Yeah. So one thing we find that's surprising maybe is that this travel strategy we were talking about is quite common. So over 60% of traders were traveling when they imported the first time we did this survey. But you should note that's not 100%, right? There's almost half of these traders who are choosing not to travel. So this is kind of an optional way (laughs) of dealing with these search and contracting problems that people face. The second thing, which sort of tells you maybe why not everybody is doing it, is that the travel is super expensive. So these these traders are paying thousands of dollars on average every time they travel to buy goods, right? And that's a lot, especially relative to the size of these businesses. So you should think that they're paying about 10% of the value of the goods they're bringing back on an average trip just in things like plane tickets and visas and hotels and so on.
1: And so are there patterns to... Who is traveling and what it is that they're ultimately doing once, once they're there?
2: So one thing that we see is that transactions that take place when traders travel look really different on average than those that take place when they order remotely over the phone or on the internet or, you know, all the other strategies that you can use if you're not there in person. So one thing is that these transactions are on average bigger and they happen less frequently. And I think you can think about that pretty intuitively as like me doing my grocery shopping and deciding whether to go to my corner store or like make a big trip to Costco. And maybe I live further from Costco than the corner store. I know I can get lower prices there and I can find some different stuff at the Costco. Right. And so every few weeks, I'm going to make the big trip and I'm going to really stock up and get some good stuff. But I'm not going to go every few days the way I might to my corner store. And that's exactly the same pattern that we see with traders who pay these big costs to travel versus those who, who just order over the phone or the Internet. A second thing that we then see, right, which is sort of, you know, OK, why, why would you do this? Why would you pay this big cost to go and stock up? And I think the answer to that is, one, we see people end up paying lower prices to their suppliers when they travel in person. And two, they tend to find new products more frequently. And this aligns exactly with what people told us they were doing all along, right? Not surprisingly, these guys know what they're doing, right? What they said is, I need to go see what new products are available, right? That's kind of, in, in to an economist's mind, that sounds like a search problem. <laughs> And two, they told us I need to go check the goods and make sure they're correct. I don't want to get cheated by my supplier. And this part is a little more convoluted to an economist's ears that sounds like contract enforcement problem. And building in some economics theory, the reason you might think that that would lead to lower prices is that you're not having to to solve what we call a repeated game with your supplier, right? If you're buying remotely, you need to somehow motivate them to not cheat you. And one way you can do that is by paying higher prices so that they want to get your business again rather than ripping you off. And so exactly what we'd expect to see is that people who buy remotely and are not there to check their goods for themselves have to pay higher prices. Whereas those who go there in person and can check things so they know they're not getting cheated might face lower prices.
0: Is there an alternative kind of explanation, which is that the reason you might travel is that you are trying to build a relationship with your supplier, right? And it's that personal relationship that builds trust. And and that's the thing that helps you make these big orders, right? You, you're less likely to screw someone that you've, you've had a friendly lunch with or, or something. Yep. Do we know anything about that?
2: Yeah. So that's actually when we first started talking to traders about this, we thought that that might be a lot of what was going on. In fact, what we see is that traders who travel tend to continue traveling. You know, you might have thought that this is just something you do like early in your career or when you're checking out a new country. And then once you find your supplier that you can trust, that you're happy with, you can stop paying these big costs. Turns out that in this context, that's just not what we see. People travel over and over again. And so it looks more like something you have to keep doing. To f- new goods are coming out all the time. You want to go back and find the new stuff. And you know, suppliers might always have an interest in taking your money, and so you you continue to go check your goods as well.
1: So from what you've learned from doing this, what do you think trade economists need to consider that they don't typically take into consideration when they're they're doing their research into these kinds of questions?
2: Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure it's so much things that trade economists don't consider. I think the most the sort of first step thing is just, we now have a better handle on how quantitatively important these kind of search and contract enforcement barriers might be relative to other types of trade barriers. Right. So traditionally, trade economists are very focused on physical barriers to trade, right? things like transportation costs or getting, getting goods over distances, and two, on regulatory barriers to trade, so things like tariffs and I'm absolutely not here to tell you that those are not important. We should focus on those. Very good. Um, you can stay. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, but I think what this does suggest is that we might also want to put some more attention on these kind of information barriers. The second thing, which is maybe sort of less obvious, is you know a lot of the way you might immediately think about helping people, for instance, solve contract enforcement problems in developing countries is you might say, OK, you know, we need to improve court systems. What you really need is for Nigerian and Chinese businesses to be able to take advantage of a reliable legal system uh, when they have disputes. And that might very well be true, but that's a really tall order, right, if you're thinking about what are actual policy solutions to fixing this problem. And so I think a sort of secondary lesson of this research is people are really clever. And they're coming up with all sorts of ways you might not have thought of to solve these problems that they face like getting on a plane and going there in person. And so sometimes we might have sort of policy solutions that can help people overcome these barriers indirectly, right, that you wouldn't have thought of. Like, if you make it easier for people from developing countries to get visas, it's easier for them to engage in business travel and solve some of these problems without having to overhaul the whole court system. And so I think this research, by sort of seeing how people in practice do solve these challenges they're faced with can sort of give some hints to unexpected policy levers that might improve the situation.
1: Can I go back to the, the first thing that you said though about magnitudes? So what do your estimates suggest are, you know, the size of these informational search costs uh, as a trade cost relative to some of the other ones that a trade economist might be more familiar with.
2: Yeah. So in this very particular context, what we find is that these search and contract enforcement frictions combined uh, have roughly the same cost to welfare as regulatory and physical trade costs. I mean, about two thirds. Right. But on the sort of the same order of magnitude. You know, I don't wanna extrapolate too far from that. These are like fast changing consumer goods. You might think for instance, that search problems are gonna matter less if you look at a different kind of problem, but it does suggest that they're really on the same order of magnitude as these other types of problems we traditionally focus on.
0: That was Meredith speaking to us in January when we were all in San Diego for the meetings of the ASSAs. Um, that was before the world descended into a, a hellscape of, of doom.
1: More recently, we got in touch with one of the business people in Nigeria that Meredith and her colleagues have been talking to. All right, my name is Abiodun Bashir, CEO, Spree
3: of Communications, and we deal in computer and computer accessories, and multimedia accessories.
0: Abidun imports laptops, phones, and accessories from China and the UAE. I asked him if he knew where the products coming from the UAE were actually made.
3: I guess mostly they come from China to the UAE.
0: Aberdeen said that mostly he traveled to, to check out new products. So if he was thinking about buying a new laptop, he needs, to, he needs to run it. He needs to check that the transaction is going to work out between him and the supplier. I asked him how often he traveled.
3: In my own case, sometimes maybe twice in a year, sometimes twice, sometimes maybe like four, but a minimum of, let's say, once in a year.
1: That was life before... COVID-19. And obviously, COVID-19 has been incredibly disruptive. There was a lockdown in Lagos for the whole of April, and things are only partially reopening now. Abedin's business is only allowed to open three times a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and only from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m.
0: Abedin said that that was not enough for business. He also said that because of COVID-19, he couldn't get in stocks from China or the UAE.
3: So in the long run, I have to settle for those who I can also get in Nigeria, which is not readily available. So in a nutshell, I have not been able to restock. That is the issue now.
1: Now, after the COVID shock, we also reached out again to Meredith. She and her team had been tracking what's going on in, in Nigeria through phone interviews, Evidence problems with sourcing, they're not unique.
2: Focusing on the on the sourcing side, um, you know, even quite recently, we've been doing surveys all the way through the end of May, over a third of them said that they hadn't been able to source any goods for their businesses at all since the beginning of 2020, which is obviously not a, a normal circumstance. And that's going to cause problems for them pretty soon. On average, they said they had only about a month's worth of goods in stock. So they're quite worried about figuring out how to how to deal with that.
1: The thing they seem to be most worried about is people actually buying stuff.
2: You know, I think the thing that they are the most worried about is low demand. When you ask them what what issues they're facing, they went through a lot of their financial reserves during the lockdown. And so now they're nervous that consumers are still not buying as much especially for these sort of goods, right, that are like clothing, electronics, things that are somewhat durable and consumers can put off when they're also hurting, and about paying upcoming business costs. So that, that's, that's, I would say, the number one thing. But the number two thing is clearly worries about um, restocking, and, and that involves both difficulties actually being able to get goods from suppliers and then also problems with transportation.
1: We also wanted to know how the Nigerian traders were coping with the travel restrictions.
2: Last year, so in 2019, over half of the traders we talked to imported from China, and about a quarter of those traveled to buy in person when they were importing. In contrast, this year, only 10% of the traders have bought from China so far, and of that 10%, only 5% have managed to travel. And I think that was, you know, not that was almost surely entirely before the lockdown. Um, So I think that's a a long way of saying they really haven't figured out how to deal with this yet. Right. So we don't actually see uh, a ton of shifting toward other source countries. Um, There's a little bit of a shift toward trying to buy domestically within Nigeria, but that's almost entirely from people who are already doing some domestic buying. I think that's not too surprising because these type of goods are, are generally not uh, produced on a large scale within Nigeria. And so somebody's got to be importing them.
1: Meredith said that almost half had said they were planning to seek out new suppliers, but not so many of them say that they were going to switch where they were actually sourcing from.
2: I think that that is sort of not as surprising as it might sound, partly because Right now, it's not just China that's being hit, right? It's pretty difficult source from anywhere in the world. But as a secondary point, because I think a lot of them recognize that even when they buy from suppliers in other places, often the goods were originally made in China. So I think that they, they recognize that if they can't get the goods from China, it's not like the supplier in Dubai, who's also buying goods from China, is is necessarily going to have better luck.
1: Abidun said COVID was going to change his business and was going to mean he would look for more suppliers. He hadn't decided where those suppliers might be outside of China, but was open to sourcing from, from elsewhere.
3: If we can get same price and same attention from other countries, why not do business with them? We definitely do business with other countries or suppliers that we can get
1: from China. He also said he had no plans to travel, and not until there was a cure.
3: No, (laughs) no, no, no. I don't think I can do that now. Not even when we've not found any uh, reasonable uh, cure or solution to COVID-19. So that is not in my plan for now.
0: He said that that would make it hard to find new products, but that, you know, maybe he would be able to to be effective from where he was instead of traveling around to, to source products. What I took away from that was that although he would like to have alternatives to travel, uh, those, those perfect substitutes haven't really been identified yet. Here's Meredith again.
2: I think the thing that is different about being there in person is some of them also shop around to suppliers that they may not already have a relationship with. And the question is whether they'll use e commerce sort of instead to establish those new relationships or whether they will refocus in on people that they were already in that kind of remote contact with. Over the last five years, we know that travel and personal mobility were a big strategy that a lot of traders used to deal with underlying information problems or contract enforcement problems. I think it remains to be seen whether in this moment where it's become much more difficult for them to do that, they're going to try to wait it out and then go back to doing things in the same way, or whether this will kind of be the little push that um, makes other kind of services that are needed to facilitate trade and goods possible, right? Whether you'll see kind of innovation in legal services or financial services, Or e-commerce that will address those same underlying problems that they were dealing with by traveling and let people start to do things in a new way.
0: And I think that remains to be seen, but it's going to be
2: really interesting over the next couple of years.
0: So this seems to be the question that everyone is is asking right now. Is COVID-19 going to lead to this really fundamental shift in in the way that people do business? It, obviously it's it's too early to tell. It's possible that the world gets shaken into a, a new equilibrium, a, a new way of doing things. Um, maybe before everyone was just making a mistake, um, and now they're going to be forced to, to do things in a different way, and that way could be better. So maybe after a vaccine is found, there's going to be this big shakeup of supply chains and, and ways of doing business.
1: In the shorter term, it seems like there's all sorts of costs that these folks are having to deal with right now. They're to do with trade, the, the domestic shutdowns, everything. So as important as trade is for trade talks... Some of these other concerns may be even more pressing. Here's Abadun.
3: The directives are not favorable at all. You know, working three days in a week and still just within six hours, which is not what people are used to, it's really draining, you know. And at the end of the day, government will still come and say, you have to pay your tax, you have to do this, you have to do that. All those bills still coming into the... Business, so I think is is a major concern for now.
1: So, just taking a step back, you know, one of the big points about Meredith's research is this really important question about missing trade. Trying to understand the trade costs that are impeding countries from trading as much as we might expect them to to be doing. But I think with COVID nineteen, there's going to be a whole lot of missing trade for a really long time.
0: And on that note, I think that is all for Trade Talks.
1: A massive thanks to Abidun Bashir for talking to us, and as well to Meredith Starts of Stanford University. Do check out Meredith's paper, The Value of Face-to-Face, Search and Contracting Problems in Nigerian Trade.
0: A thanks from me also to Grace Oliyemi Adawoyi for helping us with the logistics.
1: And thanks as always to Colin Warren, our audio guy.
0: Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bown.
0: And we're on at trade, underscore, underscore, talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade, underscore, underscore, talks. Because the only thing positive about COVID-19 so far is that we got to speak to Meredith Starts twice. And that was better than once.